Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. And on the menu this week, Alaska's fishermen put their yarns to good use, the subtle advantages of working in two languages, and the intrepid Russian making patriotic parmesan. But first, Imperial Ambitions was our cover line this week. Facebook has spread from a college dormitory in America across vast swathes of the planet, and its founder Mark Zuckerberg has amassed a huge empire. But it seems he's just getting started, as our cover leader explained. Not since the era of Imperial Rome has the thumbs-up sign been such a potent and public symbol of power. Thankfully, though, this one doesn't revolve around quite so much bloodlust. Facebook's rise to power has been swift. A mere 12 years after it was founded, Facebook is a great empire with a vast population, immense wealth, a charismatic leader and mind-boggling reach and influence. And he has a loyal following for sure. The world's largest social network has 1.6 billion users, a billion of whom use it every day for an average of over 20 minutes each. Yet Mr Zuckerberg isn't resting on his laurels. He has plans to connect the digitally unconnected in poor countries by beaming internet signals from solar-powered drones and is making big bets on artificial intelligence, or AI, chatbots and virtual reality, or VR. Not a catapult in sight, but battle lines are being drawn. This bid for dominance will bring him into increasing conflict with the other great empires of the technology world, and Google in particular. The ensuing battle will shape the digital future for everyone. To discover our predictions, you can turn to the leader and briefing in The Economist this week. Meanwhile, our United States section reported on a tussle taking place over the icy waves of Alaska, where throngs of fishermen are battling it out to get their haul. But now, as the article explained, those fishing on a smaller scale are innovating through the internet to help tip the scales in their favour. A war between small family fishing operations and Seattle-based companies pushed Alaska to statehood in 1959. The state's $6 billion commercial fishing industry still suffers from a David and Goliath complex. Albeit slinging hooks, not stones, except this time it's business, not birthrights. Over the years, Alaskan halibut fishermen have faced big reductions in their harvest limits, while factory trawlers dump millions of pounds of dead halibut overboard as bycatch. And so to aid their struggle, local fishermen have started a project employing arguably their most famed ability, spinning a yarn. Network fishermen, who numbered only 20 at the project's start, agreed to share data on where and what they were catching in order to create maps that highlighted areas of high bycatch. Over time, this crowd-sourced compendium of tales has evolved. 
By combining thousands of data points as vessels traverse the fishing grounds, these wiki maps, created and updated through crowdsourcing, show gravel beds where bottom-dwelling halibut are likely to linger, craggy terrain where rockfish tend to lurk, and outcrops that could snag gear. So might the tide be turning for these local fishermen. We'll have to see. Local production is often done purely by choice. Yet our Europe section told the story of someone whose decision wasn't entirely his own. In Russia, a land where European cheese is banned, one man is now dedicating himself to making patriotic parmesan. At 27, Oleg Sirota was living the Russian dream. He had an information technology company with 30 employees, an apartment in Moscow, a Toyota and a Mercedes. But his childhood dream lay unfulfilled. All that time I was dreaming of farming, dreaming of milk, of cows and of cheese. He thought about starting a creamery, but saw no way to compete with European imports. And then Russia annexed Crimea. The West imposed sanctions. Vladimir Putin retaliated by banning farm imports from the European Union. So Mr Sorota upped sticks and headed to the countryside. In August 2015, in a field outside the village of Dubrovskoye, Mr Sorota opened Ruski Parmesan. Now a happy man, he only worries that sanctions may be lifted too early. If Obama and Merkel extended sanctions for another ten years, I'd build them a monument in bronze right out front, he says. Though his president might find that a little beyond the pale. To our business section now, where our taste buds are tantalised further by an article on global appetites. As the piece explained, India has surprisingly few brands that are recognised abroad, yet one young startup is trying to take its local business model overseas. Zomato, which is based near Delhi, started in 2008 as a listing service for local eateries. Its staff do the rounds every few months or so. Although that information is painstaking to gather, it attracts foodies and, in turn, restaurants that are eager to advertise. The result is a business with mouth-watering margins. But after dining out locally, the firm was still feeling a little peckish. India has relatively few restaurants, and most of those are cheap. Residents of Lisbon spend twice as much as those in Delhi on eating out, even though the Indian capital is 20 times more populous. Going against the grain was a theme mirrored in our finance section this week with an article on Brazilian banks. As the country's recession deepens, it seems the banks are simply shrugging it off. It looks like a bad joke, the world's fastest man promoting a bank in the world's fastest shrinking big economy. Yet the use of Usain Bolt's image on posters for Banco Original, a five-year-old Brazilian bank, is apt in a way. Indeed, much like Mr Bolt, Original seems to be taking things in its stride. Its loan book grew by two-thirds to 4.25 billion reais, even as Brazil's economy shriveled by 3.8%. It isn't just this bank that's defying gravity, though. In the year to September, the banking sector as a whole, excluding state-owned development banks, raked in net profits of 85 billion reais, up from 66 billion reais in 2014. 
this seems to fly in the face of financial aerodynamics, much as Mr Bolt's towering figure, too tall for a sprinter apparently, defies physics on the track. Our Johnson columnist took on conventional linguistic thinking, writing in our books and arts section this week. English continues to cement itself as the world's default corporate language, and that would seem to be a blessing for native English speakers. But as Johnson explained, there may be subtle advantages to working in a foreign tongue. English speakers can try to bulldoze opposing arguments through sheer verbiage, hold the floor to prevent anyone else from getting a word in, or lighten the mood with a joke. Not so easy if you have to search for the mot juste. Non-natives have not one hand, but perhaps a bit of their brains tied behind their backs. But even if this gives a perception of lesser intelligence... It can be a boon to be thought a little dimmer than you really are, giving the element of surprise in a negotiation. And a broader appreciation of culture fosters lateral thinking. Coming from another culture, not just another language allows people to notice stumbling blocks and habits of thinking shared by the rest of the natives and guide a meeting past them. As well as time to construct the right argument. Speaking slowly allows a non-native to choose just the right word, something most people don't do when they're excited and emotional. There is a lot to be said for thinking faster than you can speak, rather than the other way round. The Economist may have spoken a little hastily, it seems, in our evaluation of West Indian cricket. We finish with a humble explanation, found among the pages of our Americas section, as to why we failed to predict a stunning victory. Writing about West Indian cricket last year, The Economist tried to explain why a dazzling team has faded. On April 3rd in Kolkata, the West Indian men's and women's teams both dazzled by winning the 2020 or T20 championships. Undeterred, we responded in a manner befitting the situation at hand, offering more analysis. Unlike richer, better-managed rivals, the West Indies Cricket Board, or WICB, does not have the money to lure the best cricketers away from high-paying T20 leagues to play international games. Caribbean men have thus become T20 specialists. And a little luck may have helped the teams on their way. Darren Sammy, the men's captain, won all six coin tosses, allowing his side to bat second, so it knew just how many runs it would need to win. Nevertheless, the victory was well-deserved, we conceded. We feel nearly as sheepish as the bookmakers, who put the odds of that happening at 150 to 1. Humbled we bow out for this week. I'm Anne McElvoy and that was our tasting menu. If you're hungry for a little more, you can find all of our stories on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 